So this is the seventh and final installment of this particular series. Might, might there be another series? <laughs> Not right away. I need some time off. Okay. Uh, for, I need some time to catch up on all the other parts of my job. Um, however, there might be, I don't know. Thank you, Phyllis. There'll be another class, but not right away. I'm gonna, there's gonna be a, I'm gonna take a breather from the Thursday slot for a while and catch up on some other stuff. Uh, Robbie? Towards the end, uh, can you talk about the Israeli election coming up? I heard about Oh, let's start with that, oh, okay. but not take the whole class on it. So what just happened in Israel is a parliamentary uh, um, horse trading. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu what party won the most won 35 seats in the election uh, what six weeks ago um, and um, uh, was because they had the best chance of forming a governing coalition which is how parliamentary systems work with other parties they have to get a majority of 61 out of the 120 seats and they only had 35 so if a party doesn't get a majority outright in a parliamentary system, they have to cut deals with other parties in order to put together a governing coalition. Make sense, everybody? Parliamentary democracy? Um, and uh, um, unfortunately for Likud and Benjamin Netanyahu, the coalition partners that he thought he was going to work with couldn't, one of them, Avigdor Lieberman, who... Um, Netanyahu and Lieberman deserve each other, um, uh, 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 refused to join the coalition unless the bill that had been promised, which would require ultra-Orthodox Israelis to serve in the army, uh, was ratified. The ultra-Orthodox parties, who are part of the governing, potential governing coalition, don't want this bill passed. And so Netanyahu's uh, expected coalition partners could not agree. And so after 60 days, the deadline to form a government passed last night. He was unable to form a government. So as not to allow the president of Israel, which is a mostly ceremonial post, Reuven Rivlin, who Netanyahu hates, give him the opportunity to invite the other leading party to create a governing coalition. He managed to get the Knesset to vote to dissolve the current Knesset and have new elections, which is to say that the current uh, expected, the, the current results of the current election from two months ago resulted in the shortest ever Israeli government, which is zero. And now they have to have elections again, and it's chaos. You can compare it to, say, Italy or something like that. We'll see what happens over the next few months. So theoretically, all members can be new. Like it could totally theoretically, yeah, yeah. Well, well, Netanyahu. If Likud, his if Likud, the Likud party had was not now completely centered around the personality of Netanyahu after he leading it for so many years. They could have rebelled against their leader, Netanyahu. He's just the party leader, and said, "We are voting you out and replacing you with someone who can create a government." But, but there's a real cult of personality in the Likud party right now, comparable to what you see with the Republicans and Trump right now. Nobody, nobody's willing to stand up to the guy who's got that much clout. 
And so this is looking like, uh, actually, we have no idea what's going to happen, whether this will be the end of Netanyahu's political career or temporarily, or whether he will somehow resurrect himself again. What about the indictment? Well, part of why this is bad for Netanyahu, and again, it's like, this is all just politics, everybody. Part of why it's bad for Netanyahu is because the deal he was cutting with his potential coalition partners was they would pass a new law giving him immunity from prosecution because he is under indictment. And now the indictment is supposed to be uh, brought in in like August. So, and the elections won't be till September. So now Netanyahu could get indicted before having any immunity uh, because he couldn't. So this is basically, uh, for Netanyahu, the politician, this was a terrible, terrible day, right? Because he's in, now he's in deep trouble. So he might get indicted before the next election, in which case uh, it's unlikely that his party will continue to support him. But who knows? I'm not, you know... Not only don't I have a crystal ball, I'm not a political expert. So yeah. I understand the division between the two right parties, uh, Lieberman and the Orthodox. Right. But what is Lieberman's angle? Like, what will he be able to accomplish? Will there be another coalition that will take him in so that he doesn't... Who knows? Well? Nobody knows whether Lieberman did this out of pure spite, uh, because he and Netanyahu hate each other's guts, or whether he's doing it with a strategy. It's not exactly clear to me. Ask some expert. I can't answer that question. It's interesting how the right Well, we're going to talk about that today. There's an unholy alliance. There's an unholy alliance between the ultra-nationalist parties in Israel, which are secular, and the ultra-religious parties. They, they, uh, they hate each other's guts, but they both want certain things in common in Israel. And so I'm not going to talk about it more now, so we can get to our material. Anne? You mentioned several times parties. How many parties are there? Right now, in the Knesset, about a dozen. So you have to look at parliamentary systems rather than our two-party system. And I don't want to do a, a civics lesson on parliamentary democracy right now. You'll have to learn about that. Okay? It's not hard to learn about. Great Britain operates that way. Germany operates that way. The United States is unusual in having a two-party system. Most countries, democracies are parliamentary democracies, and they have multi-party uh, systems. So there's no government until September? There is. There's a caretaker government. Caretaker. The existing government, yeah. That was existing before, before even this election. So you call that a caretaker government. Yes? There seems to be two opinions. One that people have their minds made up and they'll vote essentially the way they did last time, or two, some people are more aware and disgusted with Netanyahu and he may be out. Right. Let's, let's remember in politics, especially these days, how much can change in the next 90 days before the next election. So much so that we have no idea. So it's fun to speculate, and that's what cable news is all for. But let's not waste our time on it right now. Um, okay. Yes? Just before you start, if I could just ask you something. Oh, and one thing, Gary. So that, what I just said, we will circle back around to that uh, from the historical perspective, how we got to this moment, hopefully in this class, but that's what I want to get to it, okay? 
because that's more interesting to me, is a bigger picture of, you know, because politics is a, uh, is a horse race, and it's a circus, and it's going to go on tomorrow and the next day and the next day. So I'm trying to get a larger frame. Yes, Gary. I was thinking a lot this week about your last remarks from last week, in which yeah. you made a really powerful and eloquent um, statement about it, it was an and rather than an either or. It was yes and. Mm-hmm. And, it, and if, I, if I remember correctly, you said yes, the Palestinians have been mistreated and the world's uh, view of, uh, uh, of Israel is uh, representative of anti-Semitism to a profound degree. Yes. And um, in that same spirit of yes and, mm-hmm. I wonder if perhaps the opposite is true. I wonder if perhaps hidden in the psyche of the non-Jewish peoples of this world is the secret belief that, that the people who gave the world the Ten Commandments are the holders of a higher ethical standard for all of us. And that perhaps the reason Soweto is forgotten and Rwanda is forgotten and the Palestinian situation is not is because in these people's secret mind and hearts, there's a disappointment. There's a stand there's a sense that the highest the standard bearers are failing all of us. Um, uh, I think that's a theory worth exploring. I'm not willing to make such a, uh, a broad statement myself. Um, I think, um, but let's have that conversation, but not now. Thank you. It's, a bu- I, it's, not a, it's, not, it's not the first time I've heard that theory. There are many theories about why anti-Semitism, and some of them are because people are jealous People of the Jews, people think the Jews have a higher standard. People resent that the people who brought this idea of uh, collective morality to the world, uh, and, and they're resentful. There are all kinds of meta-theories. I think they're too... Uh, uh, what's generous. Gen- uh, generous. What? Not generous. I think they're too broad as to uh, hold up um, beyond a kind of wonderful meta idea. Anyway, but thank you for mentioning it. I don't necessarily disagree. Nancy? Yeah, you were just saying that um, it's just politics, that, you know, politics is a horse race, but what about the ultra-Orthodox? I mean, what, what does this pretend going forward that um, they, they have their own very clear niche that's growing and uh, it's not just politics because this, is, this runs pretty deep. Another conversation we have to pursue another time, because I want to get to uh, uh, my agenda for this class, okay? Um, Okay, so now, what I want to cover today is what's happened to Zionism, both internally in Israel and in the world, since the Six-Day War in 1967. That's essentially what I want to talk about for this final class, is look at the last 50 years. Um, And... um, So we spoke a good deal about the Palestinian refugee problem last time. So I'm going to put that aside for a little bit as a focus and focus more again on internal Zionism, internal to Israel. The Palestinians are inevitably woven into everything that takes place. Uh, So 
remember the Six-Day War. Uh, Israel, uh, 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 Nasser, the president of Egypt, closed the, uh, the, uh, the Straits of Tehran. He blockaded Israel, um, said he was going to wipe Israel off the map. Um, Syria and Jordan also joined in this uh, um, uh, drumbeat. Um, there were, I, I can't remember exactly how many uh, Arab armies were participating, but uh, uh, what I recall, I was, I was just a boy, but what I recall is that we were afraid that Israel was going to be wiped out. That was the threat, and that was the concern, and then in six days of combat, uh, Israel preemptively, if you recall, wiped out the Egyptian Air Force on the ground, uh, raced into the Golan Heights uh, in some of the hardest fighting, recaptured Jerusalem, and took the entire west bank of the Jordan River from the Kingdom of Jordan. And in the course of those six days, to everyone's utter amazement, um, Israel expanded its territory by 500%. The territory Israel controlled after the Six-Day War was five times larger than the territory controlled before then. Okay? 1967? That's 1967. For Jews, this was a transformative experience for Jews all over the world. Um, yes? Can you clarify the, the 500%? You mean it ended up having five times the amount? More land. I believe they maybe it was five or six times larger close enough it was massive that included of course the Sinai Peninsula which uh, attributed you know most of that most of that uh, land mass that they gained the West Bank of the Jordan the Gaza Strip which was part of the Sinai Peninsula at the time and the Golan Heights and um, a kind of euphoria, no, not a kind of, euphoria took over the Jewish world and took over Israel. We thought we were done for, and the next day we are the conquerors. We have recaptured our holy places in Jerusalem. We have reunited the city of Jerusalem under Jewish rule for the first time in three in 2,000, more than 2,000 years, right? The Hasmoneans, I guess, 23, 2,200 years. We are in control of our ancient capital again. Uh, and uh, there are many elements, so, so it's a time of, it's, it's euphoric time. We can wander the length and breadth of the land of Israel for the first time under, with, with, without, without, uh, you know, without fear, without danger. Um, so here's a few factors I want you to keep in mind. So now we talk about the West Bank as the Palestinian territories, the occupied territories, um, uh, the, the, um, uh, land that Israel illegally occupies, right? So I'm going to unpack this first before I go into the next thing. 
it's, a, it's sort of like a truism in international parlance, in the way we talk about things, that Israel occupied Palestinian land in 1967 in the Six-Day War. Right? Isn't that how you think about it generally? The way, the way it goes? Uh, those are the occupied territories. Uh, in a peace deal, Israel will give back that land to the Palestinians. All of this is not history. And I'm not saying this to be a right-wing blowhard. I'm saying it so that we can get things straight. When the United Nations voted to partition Palestine in 1947 and create an Arab state and a Jewish state, please recall that the Arab population of that region rejected the partition plan. Rejected it. They only embraced it later after they lost and wanted to find some legal legs to stand on. Do you follow what I'm saying? Why did they reject it? Because <laughs> they thought they could wipe Israel out. But in part they rejected it because their popu- the, the, relation, the ratio between population and land masses of the two people they felt was out of whack. No, no, they uh, hold on, hold on. Uh, well, first of all, it's hard to talk about they because one of the problems that the Arabs had was they did not have a unified leadership. So that, I think I talked about this last time. Um, so talking about they is difficult. All I can say about the they is that no one in the they accepted the partition plan. It was, it was whoever the they were all determined that it was in their interest, and let's just leave it at that, not because it was unfair, not because it was this, but it was in their interest to reject the UN partition plan. Why? I'm sure different people had different reasons why they thought they should reject it. Some may have been ideologically based, some may have been uh, strategically based, but there's no they really to talk about, and that's important to keep in mind. I don't mind. mean to press this, but in the book that you recommended last week that I picked mm-hmm. up, in Side by Side, it, 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 it is clear that the Palestinian narrative is, I'm just yes, is that it was, re, and this may be a rewriting of history, yes, but it, it is that it was uh, disproportionately favoring not only the Jews who were at the time living in Israel, but those who were rapidly climbing on every ship possible to immigrate to, 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 to the territory. Uh, yes, they, yes, that's true. That's true. Uh, they did feel it was disproportional, and um, so they rejected it. It was a crucial error that they made. But you just said a moment ago, not because they didn't think it was unfair. No, that's not what I said. Oh, I said I can't talk about they because uh, the Palestinian leadership was not unified. Fair enough. That's all. Okay. Some Palestinians. I don't want to now, but it's important. Since then, the Palestinians have created a narrative of their national history. That national history, like every national history, is part fact and part myth. Every national history is tendentious, meaning it is trying to prove why their national story is valid. So the, um, it's important to know that, uh, so I'm, I am immersed in the Zionist national history. But in teaching this class, I've been doing my best to separate between national myth and historical fact. And so, yes, that book lays out the Palestinian narrative as they've constructed it 
for the Palestinian nation. Palestinian nationalism was created in response to Zionism. It's not, it's, it's a, as we've talked about, it's a very new national identity. And, uh, it's, it, and so um, I would disagree with many of the assertions that they're making in the national history slash myth that they are trying to write about who they are. So that's a short version of, of how I feel about that. Doesn't mean I don't think they're lying. I think they're, that's what national myth-making is all about. Now, here we are. You know, we grew up with the American civic national myth. And I bought it hook, line, and sinker. Manifest destiny, westward expansion, um, all the myths of um, Columbus, you know, all that stuff. The meritocracy. Well, I'm just talking about the. Yeah, I'm just talking. About, yeah, the, it's part of it. But all the myths of America that I grew up on, that then as a more sophisticated adult, I want to dis- deconstruct. And I have to say the same about uh, about any other national myth, just like the American one. Uh, that doesn't. So so that doesn't mean I want to smash it to bits. <laughs> I want to be a. I want to be a an intelligent, informed, sophisticated thinker about it. That's my goal. Um, okay, so but the important thing here is that it's enti- when you hear Israelis or people who are quote-unquote pro-Israel talking about how, wait a minute, those weren't Palestinian lands, they're right. Okay? Even, you know, even people I disagree with on so many issues who are right-wing, there's a lot I do agree with in terms of what's true, what's accurate, or let me put it this way, not true. How many different ways you can legitimately interpret what these territories are? Um, and that's part of the problem is that they're so contested. So let's face it. After the, 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 the um, new Israeli government accepted the partition plan, in 1947, the Arab, they, none of them did. None of them did. A war ensued. When the war, a ceasefire was declared, Israel occupied more of the partition land that, than they had been assigned. What happened then? Well, Egypt created a uh, little puppet government on the Gaza Strip that they called the Palestine governing body. But it was non-existent. It was, it was all from Cairo. And by, that was 1947. By 1959, they had dissolved it, and Gaza was part of Egypt. It wasn't formally annexed by Egypt. However, the West Bank of the Jordan River was formally annexed by Jordan in 1950, after the war. It was part of Jordan. Legally, illegally, very few countries accepted Jordan's claim. But I just want to point out that what that there was no, and every all the residents of the West Bank when Jordan annexed it were given full citizenship in Jordan. So what happened between forty-seven and fifty? War. It? No, no. War. Whose, whose territory was it? War. It was not part of Israel. War. It was 47 to 50. 47 
the partition plan. Yes, 48 Israel. Israel declares independence. Well into 49, November of 49, war. It includes Gush Etzion. I'm going to talk about Gush Etzion. But, but Nancy, it was wartime. It didn't belong. It belonged to whoever had the biggest, whoever won it. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, it was a war. The the lines of Israel that we understand as the pre nineteen sixty seven map of Israel were determined. I said this last time because the UN enforced a ceasefire in November of nineteen forty nine, and so Moshe Dayan sat down with his Jordanian counterparts and drew a line on the map with a green pen to say, we control this part, you control this part. And where the, line was, where, the, where the green line was too thick, that was like no man's land, because it, was just a, it, was a, it wasn't an official border, it was an armistice line. Then over the next months and years is the scramble for territory. Egypt gets Gaza. Jordan annexes the West Bank. The partition plan as, is, doesn't exist anymore. The Golan was in the hands of Syria, but it wasn't part of the partition plan to begin with. So the partition plan did not include the Golan. Israel conquered the Golan in the Six-Day War. So up till then it was Syria? Yes. Okay. I, I yes. Just want to clarify one thing. I, I should have brought maps. I'm sorry, yeah, everybody. That would have been very helpful. Um, I didn't know I was going to go this, in the weeds this way. So the 1947 original partition plan, the West Bank and other areas were part of Arab Palestine, not Jordan. But right, but the partition plan, which I don't have a map, look it up on your phone, is, is, a, is a little triangle of land up here that's Jewish, another triangle in the coastal plain, and the Negev, and then Jerusalem's an international city, and then there's all these other bits and pieces there. It was an impossible idea, but it was the only potential solution that anybody could think of. Because it was clear at that point that, the, that the, the Arabs living in Palestine and the Jews living in Palestine were not going to be able to coexist in each other's territory. And so a partition plan was developed. That partition plan is a crazy map. You have to look at it. Israel, in order to have contiguous boundaries of its own, had to conquer land in between the sections that were granted in the partition plan in order to have some contiguous territory. Otherwise, it would have been, uh, you know, like West Pakistan and East Pakistan after the uh, partition of India and Pakistan. Mm -hmm. That didn't last long, right? Pac East Pakistan became Bangladesh. They, there wasn't going to be, it just doesn't work that way, right? They needed contiguous land which they managed to conquer until the ceasefire was imposed in 1949. At that point, the scramble for uh, the territory, the, the, the partition plan, which was rejected, doesn't in effect exist anymore. And Jordan claims the West Bank. And uh, anyone who lives in the West Bank is now a Jordanian citizen. I'm pointing that out to you because in 67, Israel conquers the West Bank from Jordan. So they, are, they have conquered Jordanian territory. Uh, Israel claims Jerusalem and annexes it. They say, we're, we're taking it. But there's a big debate in Israel over what to do with the rest of this land. Should we give it back in exchange for peace? Or 
Is it ours? That debate is very alive after the Six-Day War. And uh, many leading politicians in Israel want to give that land back to Jordan, except for Jerusalem, as soon as they can. However, and this is getting to my point, something else happens. And it's several factors. Number one, remember that the War of Independence, this war from 47 to 49, is over contested land. Israel conquered certain parts of what was going to be Palestinian Arab land, but lost other parts that were going to be part of the Jewish land. Because it was a war, remember? There's a bunch of kibbutzim, a bunch of cooperative villages, not too far from Jerusalem, called Gush Etzion, that are founded in the 30s and 40s. They are, it is a Jewish block of settlements. It's called the Etzion block, B-L-O-C, just meaning it's a, a you know, it's a neighborhood, it's a bunch, bunch of five different Israeli kibbutzim. During the War of Independence, the Arab forces conquered those kibbutzim and slaughtered all of the residents. Wartime. They slaughtered them. Now, uh, and the women and children had been evacuated, who are a few miles away in area that became Israel after 49. 67 comes along. It's 18 years later, 19 years later. And the children of those have been, they can look across the no man's land at where their homes had been when they were children. And they say to the government, we're going back. We won the land again. That's where our parents died. We're going back there. And they are the first settlers. Are they settlers? I'm saying that as an open question. What makes them settlers? Whose land was it before that? Is it, do you follow what I'm saying? This is how complicated it gets. Immediately. This was contested land. And so they went, they were the first people, the first Jews, to go and they reestablished the Etzion Kibbutzim that their parents had been slaughtered in. And they are called the Etzion Block, also known as Gush Etzion. The entire Israeli public, with very few exceptions, is of course sympathetic, right? So the settler movement was not initially a right-wing or left-wing phenomenon in Israel. It was, of course we should go back to, to villages that were destroyed where our parents were massacred. So we want to talk about different narratives? Listen to the Israeli narrative. As opposed to the victorious narrative, which is that these are occupied lands. See, the Palestinians, over the decades, won the PR battle. Big time. Um, and it was also their home. In other words, these are contested lands. But are they irrefutably, irrevocably one or the other? That is not true. The problem is we have, com we have, conflict we have contested land. There are many Israelis, not just on the right, who refuse to call these the occupied territories. And I understand why, right? 
And I want you to understand why, so that we can have an actual conversation about this as opposed to the sort of like, I don't know, ping pong match that is what usually transpires. Um, yes? In a minute, hold on to that, because what I want, I want to say something. So there's the first impulse. Yes, Nancy? Do you call it the Occupy Territory? It depends who I'm talking to. <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, I'm seriously answering you. Brilliant. I am seriously answering you. I call it whatever a conversation might move a conversation forward towards some kind of mutual understanding, because I have no, I'm, look, I have the blessing of being the teacher here, so you're just listening to me very graciously. <laughs> but if I'm in a debate with somebody, I've never seen the point of uh, scoring points in a debate. I don't see what it accomplishes. I don't, it's not my thing. So no, I call it what, it what might assist a conversation to move forward depending on who I'm talking to. Okay, so generally speaking, in your own mind, you don't view it as Generally speaking, in my own mind, I view it as contested. Contested. That's how I view it. But that be part of Israel? Does that include what I'm saying, Nancy? <laughs> okay. The word contested means two different, at least two different part, parties have claims to it. So I call it contested. Um, and I know that doesn't, again, that, that's how I operate. Yep. And boundaries change. And then, I mean, I'm just going to... Okay, so Nancy, so follow me through. Let's say these are irrefutably, irrevocably part of the land of Israel. And Israel uh, can claim it and annex it as the land of Israel. If they do that, and they do not give full citizenship to the residents of that land, then Israel is no longer a constitutional democracy. Right. So I'm going to say again, Nancy, that in the interim, while we were away from our ancestral homeland, another people came, peoples came and lived there. And they also claim their right to their own self-determination on the very same land. We have an insoluble problem here. You want to know in my heart of hearts what I think? I think it's that Israel conquered the land and can have the land. But as someone who believes that nation states, uh, especially my nation state, have to function according to uh, uh, the basic understanding of what uh, human rights, civil rights are uh, in, in the world today, then I cannot accept the annexation of that land without the full bestowal of rights on all the residents of that land. Completely other subject. I mean, we can talk about uh, maybe a million different examples. Nancy. Nancy, it's not another subject. It's not another subject. I cannot claim this is irrevocably the land of Israel and at the same time accept that Israel would claim it without giving full rights to the residents there. Well, that, when I say another subject, rights is something separate from a border. We're talking about a physical border. What, that was uh, but Nancy, the way nation states work is that they have physical borders. It's within the borders that the jurisdiction is enacted. The Israeli Declaration of Independence says that all people, regardless of creed or race, have a, will be given full rights in the land of Israel. So, we cannot, you, 
you, you can't have your cake and eat it, too, eat it too here, everybody. It doesn't work that way. But wait. Okay, back to 67, okay? Is that all right? Yes. Okay. Well, I'm doing my best to be cle as clear as I can. It's hard. Um, okay. So first of all, you have Israeli children whose parents were slaughtered moving back to their homes. That's powerful. No one in Israel is going to deny, deny them that. Furthermore, though, here's really something that's really deep and complicated and interesting. All of the action in the Bible happens in the mountains of Judea and Samaria, otherwise known today as the West Bank of the Jordan, otherwise known as the Palestinian territories, otherwise known as the occupied uh, territories. Right. It's like all the Bible stories are there. In the West Bank. Who lived on the coast? The Philistines. This is another one of the profound ironies. The Philistines, who are an ancient seafaring people, lived on the coastal plain in ancient Israel 3,000 years ago. The tribes of Israel occupied the hill country, which is precisely the West Bank. That's, that's the hill country. The battles between the Philistines and King David. King David's from where? Where's King David from? He's from Hebron. Hebron is the central city of the, of the, of the mountains of Judea. Um, that's where King David's from. He's the chief, the sort of head of Hebron. The, the, when he unites all the tribes in ancient Israel and captures the city of, Je of Jerusalem from the Jebusites and creates a new capital to unite all the tribes of Israel who are mostly all living in the mountain country, not on the coast. Mm -hmm. The coast is controlled by the peoples who have boat boats and chariots. We know all this from reading the Bible. However, in modern history, it's the Jews who occupy the coastal plain mm -hmm. and it's the Palestinian Arabs who live in the mountains. Um, but Jews start walking the land of Israel. And it's at all the stories from the Bible, our, not our religious, you don't have to be religious, our national heritage is all there. You go to Shechem, and there's Mount Grizim and Mount Eval, where crucial biblical episodes happen. There's Shechem, where J Jacob says bought land. There's Bethel, where he built, felt the ladder going up to heaven. There's Hebron, where King David's from. It, there's Bethlehem, where, where David is born. Mm -hmm. And you're walking, and it's our story. So I'm telling you this not to justify. I want you to get it. It's like the West Bank, if you're a Jew, and an, an addition an Israeli, who, for whom living in your ancestral homeland is um, uh, central to your identity, not because you hate the Palestinians, not because you oppress somebody, not because, none of those reasons, all internal. You follow what I'm saying, everybody? There, there, it's no small thing to say, oh, let's give that back, right? It's emotionally like wrenching. And so what happens after the war is that um, it, 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 it's not just the right who want to 
give Jews the right to live anywhere in the land of Israel. Almost every Israeli feels that way. And why not? Okay, listen to me. And why not? And also Palestinians then too? What do you mean? The right to live anywhere? No. Well, yes and no. It depends who you talk to. I'm only talking about the internal Israeli perspective right now. The battle will become, what do we do about the Palestinians? That's the battle that then emerges internally in, in Israel. What is versus our... So this is a moment of romantic, mm-hmm. ecstatic, even messianic fulfillment mm-hmm. that even the least religious Jew is experiencing as, holy smokes, I'm back... Here I am. The, I'm back at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. I can walk on the Temple Mount. Nomi Shemra's songs about Har Habayit, about the Temple Mount, are, are what everyone in Israel is singing. I can take the road down to Jericho again. I can go to the Dead Sea. I can't. It's like, it's my land. Wasn't it layered? There, just a second. Sorry. These are not rational considerations or political considerations. I'm trying to express to you the context in which what we think of now as the settler movement started. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to get across to you is the consensus that there was in Israel that this is our, that this is our right. And now I want to say one more thing. There is no legal reason why not. Mm-hmm. There is only political agreements. There is no legal reason why it's not every Jew shouldn't get to live there. Okay? It was Jordan. We conquered it. The, the partition plan of 1947 is moribund. It's defunct because the Arabs rejected the plan. It's our land. We got it back. Okay, now there are many other political realities that intrude on this. But, what I, but you know how the settler movement are now viewed as evil? Uh, and Israeli society is completely divided left and right over the issues. This was not to mention the rest of the world. This was not the case after the Six-Day War. That's one of the things I'm trying to express to you. So, it's a time of, of messianic kind of enthusiasm. Everything's going to be okay. Into that breach two political forces in Zionism start to gain strength. And this is what I want to point out to you, again, why this is a history class and I'm not trying to be a political pundit, okay? I'm trying to describe. The two forces are the religious Zionists. Okay, who are the religious Zionists? If you recall, they are a small group of Orthodox Jews who men, who who, as Zionism gained strength in the, in the first half of the 20th century, got on the bandwagon and said, we're part of this. And they, crea- they became fully participating in the Zionist experiment. They created their own religious kibbutzim. They had their own uh, yeshiva, the yeshiva of Rab Cook, where they taught that the reason they could religiously justify the profoundly secular and socialist Zionist movement was because it was the first sprouting of the Messianic era. The 
So how do they relate to the religious groups that would not go because the Messiah wasn't here yet? Um, they, the religious Zionists were outliers from the main, the main Orthodox world. But remember something else. 50, 60, 70 years ago, religious Orthodoxy was in retreat. Mm-hmm. They were flat on their backs. Even more so, the Jewish ultra-Orthodox, because most of them had never emigrated from Europe and were disproportionately among the victims of the Nazis. So that the ultra-Orthodox population was beyond decimated after the Second World War. They've only gained in power in recent decades as they've reestablished themselves. But in 67, they were not a political force. Okay? Um, it's, only be, it's only since then that they have gained and gained the ultra-Orthodox. So I'm not talking about them right now. However, the religious Zionists were a very small group. They aligned themselves with the Labour Party. They had a religious ideology that justified Zionism by saying it was going to, it were the seeds that were going to bring the Messianic era. The Messianic era being a time when the Jews would be reestablished in, with, in, according to the, vis, the ancient vision, with a restored monarchy from the line of David, with a restored priesthood, with a whole nine yards. And uh, peace. And peace. Messianic era always includes peace. Right, so they were a little bit more. Huh? Well, okay. So the religious Zionists are filled with enthusiasm, right? Religious enthusiasm, messianic enthusiasm. And they have access to our truly ancestral um, lands. So you're back in 67 now. Yeah, yeah. To our truly ancestral lands. And so over the next couple of decades, religious Zionists, filled with this sense that they are participating in the coming of the Messiah, start to establish what are called settlements, but make it with a small s. Jewish settlements, especially in parts of the land that they've conquered that have biblical um, origin and meaning. Right? Does it make sense, everybody? Yeah. I just want to say it plays a little bit also, I'm just wondering psychologically into, you know how they kid around and they say Jewish holidays, they tried to kill us, we won, let's eat. Yeah. So it's that kind of thing also, like here we go again, we're just fighting our enemies that are trying to get rid of us. Mm, but, it was, but you have to remember after 67, a lot of us probably remember, you know, 50,000 American Jews moved to Israel after 67. These weren't religious Jews, necessarily. We, the Jewish world was overtaken. We were overcome with like, it's, we did it. It's happening. This is happening. And so into that flow of energy, the religious Zionists start to assert themselves. They are a very small group, but they are going to gain and gain in power. Why? This is the general, the common wisdom, which I tend to agree with. By the 70s, and then especially the 80s, socialist Zionism has lost its mojo. Remember, Zionism was a revolutionary movement. It was going to create an ideal social democratic society in the land of Israel, 
by reestablishing the Jewish state uh, according to the principles of modern social democracy, right? And the kibbutz movement was the engine of Jewish leadership throughout the government and the military. This was true in the first several decades of Israel's existence. And it bears repeating over and over again, this was also a messianic movement. It was a rev- Zionism was a revolutionary movement. They were going to create, I need to keep going, they were going to create a new Jew. They were going to solve the Jewish problem. They were going to create an ideal society. And there was great enthusiasm and idealism and Jewish pioneers, a pioneering spirit that animated those first decades of the state of Israel. Now, we have a state. And now, we're a military power. And now, socialism is on the wane. And now, the founders are getting old. And their children don't necessarily have the fervor of the revolutionary. There's a vacuum in Israel that develops for the pioneering spirit. The religious Zionists fill that vacuum. And so, Zionism begins to take on religious overtones in the decades after the war. Meanwhile, there is another group who is also, who are not religious, but who are also part of this move. Remember Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky was the founder of the revisionist Zionists. They were the ultra-nationalist Jewish party. When I say ultra-nationalist, again, I repeat, uh, or just, uh, that's someone who, who, who thinks that might makes right, that that's the way the world goes around, that a nation-state a nation state's, uh, 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 validity and strength is based per- totally on its ability to, uh, to be the most powerful and to control and dominate its territory. All things that are, part, that are also true. About, 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 about human beings, but lacking what we call the, uh, the vision of social Zionism for a society that's based on human rights, on equality, on uplifting all, you know, it's like... And he part of the... Huh? He sneered at that. He sneered at it. And part of the... Um, he wasn't going to deny people rights, but first of all, a nation is successful to the extent that it has the the biggest guns and the strongest fists. Now, he also advocated, Jabotinsky, and this was always part of his party's platform, that that there is something called the greater land of Israel, that we have a natural ancestral homeland that extends, first he would say, to the Euphrates, because when you study the ancient book of Samuel, King David's kingdom which lasted for all of 30 years, at its widest extent, was drawing tribute from all the way to the Euphrates River. But the historical boundaries of Israel that we know about extend at least to the Jordan River, and, and you can make a strong case for beyond, because there are many, many biblical sites on the other side of the Jordan River that we hear all kinds of stories about. You just have to read Deuteronomy and see that the children of Israel are camped there. And... So, so the nationalists, the right-wing nationalists, also start militantly creating facts on the ground uh, because they, they are the minority, 
but they never want to give away that land. They have no intention of giving away that land. The labor Zionist government, which is in control, does think of it as a bargaining chip. But the religious Zionists and the right-wing nationalist Zionists don't. Does this make sense, everybody? Absolutely. They didn't feel that way about Gaza. They never felt that way about Gaza. All we know about Gaza is that was the land of the Philistines in the Bible. So Gaza never has the same status as the mountains of Judea and Samaria. And if you are uh, a Jew, uh, an Israeli or a Jew of this ilk, you never call them the occupied territories. You never call them the Palestinian territories. You call them Judea and Samaria, which are their names from the Bible. Hare Shomron and Hare Yehuda and Hare Yushalayim. You don't call it the West Bank? I mean, you're talking about they. I'm talking about they. No, you call it exclusively Judea and Samaria. And not the West Bank? No. Because that's politically charged? Yeah. The West Bank is what it was called uh, by um, uh, the Jordanians uh, when they annexed the West Bank. They were first... Jordan's name in 1949 was Transjordan. Because trans meaning they're on the other side of the Jordan. But when, they, when Jordan captured what became known as the West Bank of the Jordan River, Transjordan changed its name officially in 1951 to Jordan. Because they now control both sides of the Jordan River. What year was Transjordan established? Uh, after World War I. Um, yes? I just have a question. Uh, is there any historical fact for the um, Palestinians of, of being in that territory also? You're saying that, that um, Israel has, you know, all yes. the biblical... Yes, Israel, Israel's historical claim to that land predates the Palestinian claim. But the, Palestin but the Jews were away from that land for millennia. In the interim, other peoples took up centuries-long residence there. And those people think of themselves as the Palestinians. They, so Israel's claim predates the Palestinians, but it doesn't invalidate the right. Palestinians' claim unless you play by right-wing nationalist hardball rules, in which case ethnic cleansing is completely justified, um, in which case, you know, because it's your land. And they got there, but too bad. However, if you're not playing by those rules, then you have to acknowledge that they also have a legitimate claim because they lived there for a long time while we were away. Does that make sense? If you're not home, somebody's going to occupy your house. <laughs> right, right. They didn't do it. They didn't occupy those. They didn't occupy that town by kicking the Jews out. The Jews were long gone. Remember, Islam doesn't even come into existence until 600 years after the exile from Rome. It's like, it's like we're getting with a long, long period of time. Yes and yes. Oh, um, so when the early settlers, and I mean to the Zionists, yeah. late 19th century, they bought not in um, the hills, but in the swampland, because that's what, that's was, what they could buy. Exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. Just yeah. I was also going to say, um, there's something about when you said when you occupy somebody's house, right? Uh, even legally, there's a thing about you have to maintain the house, you have to pay taxes to claim the house. And there's something about that, I think, the Palestinians always just talk about they didn't, 
work the land, the way the Jews, Jewish people say this, right? Yeah, that's part, of the Zion, that's part of the Zionist right. national right. myth. Right, I think... Right, it's partly, there's some truth to it, but it becomes a sort of blanket justification. Right, that's what I'm right? saying. And that's the difference between right. history, taking a kernel of history, and turning it into a myth, that justifies your presence. We did develop the land. Yes, we did develop the land. But then to create a whole story that the Palestinians willfully neglected the land that was ours for the 2,000 years we were gone, that's not history. That's a... That's a of course. Of course. Everybody, nationalism is half history, half myth. Every national movement creates a mythic history. And our job as informed citizens, for me, in a, for me, my job, is to separate, to understand the myths. Look, I teach myths. I teach the Bible, right? I te- and I don't say that. I am not a denigrator of myths per se. It's when you confuse the myth for fact that... That's, that's where a lot of trouble starts. I just want to interject something you said, because you weren't here, but, that, um, but there was, that when the early settlers, Zionists, did buy the swamp land and developed it, then Arab citizens from other countries came there for economic opportunity. That's true, too. So, I just want to so again, let me point out, so the historical realities, the historical realities are the usual complex set of forces both internal and external, and accidents of history that lead to certain outcomes, demographically, economically. Then we want a a useful and simple narrative to tell about it, and so we construct a narrative. The narrative is not, it is always way oversimplified than the history was. Uh, Nancy? I'm just trying to get the basic labels straight. So the Philistines were on the coast. Now they become the title, the label, Palestinians. Okay, yes. We talked about that in an early class. Now I want to understand, when we say Palestinians, does that include the Druze, the Bedouin? Um, It depends. Is it a religious group? No, it's a national group. It's a nationalist group, independent of, of Islam. Yes. That's right. It's a Palestinian. It's a national movement. So it includes the Druze, the Bedouins. Only if they choose to be included. Well, does it? Is it like? It's fungible. No, Nancy. It's very fungible. Israeli I'll call you on you in a minute. Israeli citizens, Arab citizens of Israel, used to be called Israeli Arabs. Right. That's before the terminology of Palestinian nationalism became the predominant. Right. So, like th- so, but if you talk to some Palestinian Israelis, they may say, I don't consider myself that. Uh, they may say, I consider myself a Druze, or I consider myself an Arab. The point is, is that national identities, just like Zionist, like national identities are, n- are not fixed in stone. They're constantly, they're, 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 they're almost like they're trying to hold a very... Um, permeable uh, membrane. And that's what Palestinian refers to. Palestinian came to refer to those Arabs who identify themselves as Palestinian. The Palestinian identity doesn't really emerge until the 1950s. In response, 
as a, as a national identity. Right. There are some precursors in the 20s and 30s and 40s, so, definitely. So but as a national movement, the first, Palestinian, the first Palestinian national movement is the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization. Its charter is from 1964. Right. So, so the Palestinian national movement is about 50 or 60 years old as an organized entity. To the degree that it's been successful, the people who identify as Palestinians have bought into the identity. Right? Think about all the Jews who never thought of themselves as Zionists prior to the foundation of the state. After the foundation of the state, it was ridiculous almost not to, if you were a Jew, not to call yourself a Zionist. Because it had, it just, it became the dominant. So right now Zionism is in, experiencing a kind of eclipse right now. And there are many young Jews who will not call themselves Zionists. So the, the, the success of a national movement is the degree to which it gets the buy-in of its purported members. So then that's why, that's what I was trying to understand. So a Bedouin might say, I'm a Bedouin. Yes. But he might also have this kind of nationalistic that's right. identity as I want to, I'm a Palestinian because I'm not part of Israel, I'm part of this right. greater Arab. Right. Arab. And they could be doing that in name only, or they could become active in the liberation movement. It's all so open-ended. Yeah, you know, we want categories, everybody, and it doesn't work that way. And one last label, the Judea would be the Jerusalem Hills. Uh, actually, uh, yes, Hare Yehuda in, includes Jerusalem and the area to the south of it, which is Hebron and Bethlehem, and, and Hare Shomron are the area to the north of it. Not to the east? Which would be the east, east, as soon as you get east, Oh, I wish I'd done my map thing with you. I'm sorry. Okay, go east of Judean Hills. East of Judean Hills, you have a 4,000-foot decline to the Dead Sea and the Jordan Valley. It's like... Okay, it's like the Catskill Escarpment, okay? So it's not... It's, it's like... But that's right? not Samaria. No, that's the Jordan Valley. And because the Jordan Valley is not primarily part of the biblical stories... Um, it's not held onto as fiercely by the religious Zionists as Judea and Samaria are. However, it is held onto fiercely by the, by the nationalists. But here's the other thing. And this is what I, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, you wanted to say. Yeah, I wanted to. Is this your first time in the class? Yeah. Okay, so, you know, we've been talking for many I know, weeks. I know, I know. And we may have covered these issues prior to this. Right. So when there was the partition at the United Nations, did they use that Bible too? Uh, no. To make the partition? They only, the partition plan was, was only determined. Political. It was a political. It was political. only determined by um, population. Did they have to do anything with the Bible? Nothing. Oh, okay. That's the only thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah nothing. If that mixture is, you know, make, makes everybody, to me at least, very confused because I guess there is millions of people in the world that feel that the Bible is a story. You know, it's not 
Right, but it's a story. Right. Because, you know, Islam takes seriously their own story, and there are, you know, Buddhists take seriously their own story. So, it, to put it into the politics, it's very, very confusing. It's very and confusing. And, and I've talked in previous classes that the Zionists who, who settled the land of Israel were not religious. But the Bible, they treated as their history. And they used the Bible and archaeology to track where their ancestors... So they weren't teaching... They weren't treat, the early Zionists were not treating the Bible as a religious book. They were treating it as a book of our ancient history. Yeah, but so, now it's really planted as a, as a piece of history. Um, so we have to believe in it. No. You know, not too many people. No, no. But I don't want to go there right now, because we've talked about this before. Okay. Okay, uh, uh, Robbie and then Marka. Okay, what if there were a really strong movement in this country to return land to Native Americans? Would there be a lot of parallels? Um, what if there were... Yes and no. Here's where the parallels don't work. Israel, in 1967, at the Six-Day War... Um, every surrounding Arab nation was calling for its destruction. Um, the, the Palestinian Arabs whom they defeated, in addition to the Jordanian and Egyptian and Syrian, were enemy combatants of a war that was not over. And this is the difference between the Native Americans and, and the United States versus what's going on in Israel right now. Uh, so we have to keep in mind, this is an active conflict. Thousands of Israelis have been killed by uh, Palestinian terrorists in over the last 30 years, right? And so the idea for an Israeli of giving this land back to people who seem to actively want to destroy you is absurd. It puts Israel, of course, in a terrible dilemma because, and, you know, I'm sure, but let me so where where the analogy might might hold up is uh, yes the it it also so the analogy the analogy holds up in terms of the Native Americans have a legitimate claim to their ancestral land we have the record of all the broken treaties and all of the uh, degradation that they've suffered at the hands, at the hands of the United States government. Um, so yes, there, so there, it, it seems fair to create some mechanism for them to have restored autonomy in some of their ancestral lands. So yeah, the analogy does hold up in terms of what the out outcome of the Oslo, uh, Oslo Accords was, which was going to create a Palestinian, demilitarized Palestinian nation. So yeah, I guess you can say that they hold up. The challenge there is that is whether, um, as they say in Israel, whether there's a partner for peace. You know. Um, so, thank you for mentioning that, Marka. Yeah, that somewhat answered my question, but I, I just feel so naive in this as an American who's been in a country of immigrants in a melting pot. It's like, you know, I do get into the why can't we all just get along kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And what happened, you know, I went to four cities in Israel and what happened was it's like Jerusalem is very international. 
Jericho is very poor and still feels very, pal very Palestinian and there's resentment there. Tzfat is very orthodox and still very much a Jewish identity. But I would say in Akko, I was very surprised in Akko because I, it just seemed like this true integration for me mm -hmm. of, and it's like, why isn't this happening elsewhere? And why, and why hasn't an, an into, like, why do we need separate lands and separate territories when, you know, like Akko, I was in these groups of people and it was, you know, mm -hmm. she was it, like, it really didn't seem like a problem. It seemed like a problem when people were going, Jericho is my place and Spot is my place. And so I just, I just always, I mean, it is naive, but I always wonder, like, why wasn't there more of a... Integration. And not even integration, but just not having to, like, segment these populations totally in terms of land. Like, why can't people live in the same land? So, thank you. Given the contentious history that we've described, the success of Israeli cities like Akko, and Jaffa, and um, uh, the, the, there's a number of others, where Jewish and Arab citizens of Israel pretty much live, in a, live a pretty integrated and successful municipal and urban life. To the degree that those things have happened is, for me, a, um, a, um, uh, a measure of the astonishing success of the founding vision of Israel, which, when you read the Declaration of Independence again, creates a modern democracy ruled by law in which all citizens have equal right, while it is also the homeland of the Jewish people. For me, that, that's not an impossible contradiction, right? Um, uh, however, um, can you show her how to, to turn the sound off? Well, there's a little button on the side that silences the... Okay. All right. Those, those examples, unfortunately, are the exceptions to a, uh, an incredibly contentious history. Um, and again, when you go to Israel, depending on where you go in Israel, you will find everything from cosmopolitan um, uh, um, melting pot cities, to ultra-nationalist outposts, right? And many in Israel. Uh, Israel's a divided society at this point. Back to, yes. And, and that's related to the question I was going to ask you about these A, B, and C territories, because when I was in Israel in the 60s, like Beersheba was, you could call it an Arab town, but anybody could live there. And now it, you know, all of a sudden it becomes... No, not Beersheba, no. no a, no, B, no, and C not, only relates No, no, to, I, I don't mean that Beersheba is part of it. I'm saying that that was sort of the way it looked to me. It was like an Arab town, but Jews could live there, anybody could live there. But 
now with the West Bank or whatever these A, B, and C territories are, I found it very alarming that they're segregated these people into a territory that's that's not part, doesn't look right. like Israel. Let me see how I'm going to get from here to the finish line. Um, and, and let me just think for a minute. And world peace, please. Yeah, we'll, do, we'll figure out world peace at the same time. Because again, Nancy is making a statement about a political reality on the ground right now that was another unintended consequence of a much broader comprehensive plan called the Oslo Peace Accords. So to talk about A, B, and C now without understanding the context of them, again, is not fruitful. Um, so I'll do my best. Uh, I know, without the context, that's what I hope, even in this sort of um, uh, start and stop way, I hope you're getting a painted picture a little bit that can get us off of our, off of our positions a little, just to kind of to, to swim in this a little bit. So what I was trying to say is that the settler movement, which is both secular nationalists and religious Zionists picks up steam in the 70s but with the tacit agreement of the labor government this is for them the next this is part of the Zionist enterprise right this is our land um, we're not taking it away from anybody however These folks are, the, and I'll, I can generalize about this by and large, the ultra-nationalists and the ultra-religious Zionists are extremists. And they have, they have um, taken the mantle over the last decades of the Zionist revolution. So the Zionist revolution in Israel is no longer the socialist Zionist vision we grew up with. Mm -hmm. The proud Sabra with, uh, with the little hat on and the hoe and the rake in its hand and like a, a, a society that has very little class difference in it and a society that is based on principles of, you know, justice. And No, that is over. You don't find much of it. It's not gone, but it's not driving the car right now. Because, like in any political movement, the ones who are the most zealous and hang around the longest eventually get their foothold in the government. Eventually, even if they're not the majority, can form a powerful minority party voting as a block that can drive government policy. And you have what in not, what's not a straight line, but you have, over time, an in increasing strength of the religious Zionists and the ultranationalist Zionists claiming the mantle of Zionism. They're the true Zionists in Israel to the degree that you'll meet Jews in Tel Aviv who are, who are neither religious nor ultranationalist who aren't even sure they should call themselves Zionist anymore because the discourse has changed. Just as you meet all kinds of young Jews all over the world now who don't feel they can call themselves Zionism. Because not only as a result of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism from the outside world, but also as a result 
of the internal transformation in Israeli society. I refuse to give up the mantle of being a Zionist. I feel like, why should I leave the playing field to the people who scream the loudest? Um, and that puts me, as I've said before, I'm on a losing team right now on the, in the Zionist Sports League, okay? We're not winning any elections. We're not, you know, but um, for me, given how deeply I identify with this earlier version of Zionism, I'm not willing to give it up and I'm not willing to get off the playing field. Uh, I don't know what that's gonna mean. I don't know how I'll feel in 10 years. I don't know anything, everybody. So internal to Israel, we have seen a primarily ultra-nationalist uh, and very religious cohort establish themselves as the kingmakers in Israeli politics now. One of the things that was unusual about this current election and what just happened is that they are not natural bedfellows. The nationalists are not religious and they hate the fact that the religious parties keep trying to assert themselves and make Israel a religiously Jewish place by law. So have they been sort of frenemies or whatever since the 70s and 80s? Oh yeah. Um, but they also, uh, but only because they have a common interest, which is this idea of the greater land of Israel. And, uh, uh, but in terms of their own personal lives, they're, they're like uh, apples and oranges. And so Lieberman, who is a, uh, comes from Russia, he was born in Russia, he's the guy who just brought down the coalition talks, uh, came to Israel with the Soviet Jewry, a million Soviet Jews who came in in the 80s and uh, 90s. Um, he's not only, you know, the Soviet Jews, which we haven't even talked about yet, they were denied access to Judaism by the Soviet Union for 70 years. They didn't know an olive from a bet. They didn't know who Abraham was. My sister-in-law, my sister-in-law in Israel taught these people in, in her college. They didn't know, they, they couldn't believe you couldn't buy pork in Israel. Um, uh, and they established their own parties. The Soviet Jews also had no democratic tradition. So they come in en masse and they form their own parties and their own strongmen. Avigdor Lieberman is one of these strongmen. And they're afraid of socialism. Oh, and socialism for them is like anathema, so they are naturally right-wing, right? Naturally nationalist, naturally not anti-democratic, but like, who cares about democracy, you know? And so that's Lieberman. But for him to be denied his white stake, as they call pork in Israel, by some ultra-nationalist who wants, who wants to make sure all the, by some ultra-religious Zionist who wants to make sure that uh, non-kosher food isn't permitted in the country or that everyone should, has to not drive on, sh on the Sabbath or, and they want to create a theocracy, these guys hate each other's guts. And so they, but they've been serving in the same government for quite some time because it serves their interests. Uh, yeah. Brother who lives here in the U.S. Uh, is dating uh, 
Russian Jew who emigrated to Israel in this way when she was 14 years old, mm -hmm. uh, saved basically. Uh, Israel saved her family. She's mm -hmm. very grateful. And she, she then came here when she was older to do a postdoc and stayed, right? Her sisters are here too. The mother is still there. And there's no sense of Jewish education at all. And no. She has no, but she has, the allegiance to Israel is big. Right. And it's funny because she has no idea of religion at all. Um, None. They do a seder without reading anything. Right. You know, they just eat. Uh, yeah. And well, remember that for three generations, right. it was forbidden to practice Judaism right. in the she, Soviet Union. And she talks about the fact that her mother still kept some, some holidays in, in hiding at right. home, where they got together and did some rituals. But she really has no sense. But the, funniest, the funniest thing for me is that whenever we get together, I just know her barely recently. And she, she attacks my, ref, my reform roots in Judaism, because I used to belong to a reform synagogue. And I identify, I used to identify, even reconstruction. She, she attacks the fact that reform Judaism is not religious enough. You know? yeah. She comes from the Orthodox perspective, too. Right, that's typical. Right, right. It, there's this thing called Judaism. It sure. is Orthodox Judaism. Right. You don't know anything about it, right. nor do you have any interest in practicing it, but that's, but that's Judaism. And when you go... I am the, I am, I am the bad Jew, you know, to right. her, because I don't do all those things. And when you go to, and when you go to Israel, that is the predominant um, she understanding. She feels she's the real Jew because she was raised in Israel and she speaks Hebrew. And right. I tell her, you know, I know enough right. about Judaism. Right, right. <laughs> I, I totally understand. Robbie and, and um, um, okay, well, I remember Harry. when I was in Israel in the 90s, they told us that the, those people want the synagogues they don't go to to be Orthodox. <laughs> right. Okay, so here's, now, here's a typical, this is a good example. My brother and sister-in-law moved to Israel 40 years ago. They raised their kids essentially as liberal Jews. And in Israel, you know, they kept kosher, they kept Shabbat, they, uh, you know, they were, but they weren't strict. They were American Jews raising their kids the way in Israel. Their four lovely kids are all adults now. They all have their own children, except one soon. And, um, uh, they all chose to identify as secular because the middle ground in Israel is not part of the gestalt. There are some reform synagogues and some conservative synagogues in Israel, but they are outliers. And so if you're a Jew in Israel, uh, if you, you mostly can, so can't identify as religious in a way that people will understand unless you're Orthodox. So they all chose secular. They, they, that doesn't mean, they know more about Judaism, they know more of the prayers than, than any of us here do, right? Because Hebrew is their native language and they grew up with it, but they're not religious. And that's a giant cultural distinction between here and there. Yes, Karen. Um, the people, the, the government that would have been the labor government that wrote the Declaration of Independence. Yes. They envisioned a, egalitarian society that was the homeland for the Jews, so did right. they have any notion that that might, like now talk, they talk about it demographically, lead to a problem down the road where were the Jews to be minority? It's why the idea of just giving the Palestinian citizenship 
is a non-starter for almost everyone in Israel. But did the, those early founders anticipate this? Or sounds like they couldn't anticipate it. Yeah. Because, first of all, remember the duress they were under in the War of Independence. There are 600,000 Jews in, 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 in the land of Israel at that time. Uh, they're fighting for their survival. They have a vision of a state. But the idea that one day they would control millions of Arabs and have to figure out what to do with it, no one anticipated this. They weren't, no, they, no one anticipated it. They were writing a constitution based on the highest principles of liberal democracy. Right. And that is, you know, that's what they got. But the problems that have emerged, so... Um, we're not going to get to talk about the Oslo Accords or about... We're not going to get to talk about all that stuff. What I wanted to talk about, since this is a history of Zionism, is how the mantle of Zionism got passed mm -hmm. from the left-wing socialist Zionists mm -hmm. to the right-wing nationalists and the religious Zionists in the course of the history of Israel. Mm -hmm. That I think I've explained to you. Uh, have I? Yes. Wait, have I? Yes. I, I just want to ask you one question. You talked about the small s settler when the Labour Party was in charge, and they thought this is great, you know, of course. Right. And now there's been now there's the capital S. Right. The settler movement. Movement, and if you could just talk about that, because that's really how the Zionism kind of got morphed into this more nationalistic... Well, I, I thought I did talk about that in terms of the incremental gain in power base that this movement then, uh, because of their fervor and their devotion and their passion, and because also, in their heart of hearts, many Israelis, and I could say in a part of my heart... Understand it. Understand it. Right? right? That's, That's why I was trying to explain from the beginning about the contested nature of this land. So, but now what I want to say, yes, Marco. A quick interjection. Uh, one thing I've noticed that's a real site of ignorance, I think, for millennials in the U.S. right now who know nothing about any of this, mm -hmm. is it become unbelievably trendy that if you're a leftist intellectual, you're anti-Zionism. You don't right. know anything about it, but that's your stance. Let me use a segue. That is a segue. So we've talked about internally Zionism mm -hmm. and the shifting uh, of the, 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 the mantle. Uh, this has all been happening parallel to an external phenomenon, which is that, and we talked about this some over the classes, that it became that the left, the, the, the left, the left, whatever the left means, you know, uh, internationalists, um, you know, uh, um, uh, Zionism was always problematic, mm -hmm. but also because the left had also fully demonized the Jews in the first place, as um, the uh, as the, the the sort of the um, both the right and the left uh, saw the Jews as the secret cabal of people who are uh, financially uh, you know controlling the world and who were the the, the source of capitalism, the source of all of the Industrial Revolution's evils, the source of modernity and all of its problems. It's like, that's, that's how the Jews were viewed. But what about the Rosenberg execution? 
Well, sorry, let's not, because that's like a tiny little window. Um, uh, um, so I can't go there. I, I just got a few minutes, and I'm trying to paint a bigger picture. Um, and this bigger picture will be schematic. Um, originally, uh, so what happens in the UN is that Israel is founded, formed, uh, and declares independence, is admitted to the United Nations, along with many, many, many other emerging nation states around the world, right? How many UN countries were there in 1948? Like 50? Something like that? Um, and, uh, or 60? And now there's 190 or 200 or something... These are all nations that have come into existence since the Second World War, right? Think about the map of Africa. Think about when Kenya or Nigeria or Zambia or, you know, Botswana or, you know, these are all, these are all new nation states. Um, the Jews, the Zionists, occupy an anomalous position. They are, on the one hand, a group that had to escape Europe in order to survive. Right? The World War II proved that. It's like there was no future for Jews in Europe. In fact, our future was almost extinguished. So for us, our natural allies are confusing for early Jews because we feel very European, but we also feel an allegiance with all of these emerging nation states. But Israel's a unicorn. Israel is unique. Just like the Jewish position in European society was always unique, the position of Israel in the new global community is also unique because we're neither fish nor fowl. We're not an emerging third world country. For the emerging third world block of African and Asian and Middle Eastern nations, not to mention Latin American, for the emerging block of developing nations, Israel is a European incursion into indigenous territory. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, Can I just say, I think some of the prejudice is around colonialism itself. Yes, when you read the Palestinian narrative, where they, I consider they are legitimate in understanding what's happened to them as being victims of colonialization, of colonialism, right? These are Europeans moving into their territory and then conquering them and declaring an independent state. Give me a break. I understand the Palestinian narrative, okay? And if you don't understand it, then you'll never be able to have a conversation and so, great, write an op-ed piece. You know, it's like, I, I don't... Uh, and, and show how smart you are. It's like, who cares? It's like there are two narratives here that compete. But my point is that, um, uh, is that uh, for the third world, the Zionists become an incredibly convenient scapegoat. And the scapegoating that was typical of the Jews in Europe Remember, these countries, these new emerging countries, have all been colonies. Yeah. 
They've all learned this history. They've all been trained in the European education system. The emerging elites of all these countries know how this game is played. And it's incredibly convenient, and I think it was very conscious in many cases, to blame Zionism for the ills of the world and as the flag bearer of European colonialism. And we want our indigenous homeland back from these European invaders. So in the United Nations, that also becomes a very convenient way to unify your bloc. And you can all vote in the United Nations General Assembly on resolutions condemning Israel. By 19, and then a guy named Yasser Arafat can come along, a master of public relations, wearing his keffiyeh with a pistol on his hip and his army fatigues, and show up in front of the United Nations in 1974 and talk about all of this stuff that I just described to you and have many, many people in the world agreeing wholeheartedly with him. And so that the next year, 1975, the General Assembly can pass a resolution condemning Zionism as racism. Okay? So by 1975, Zionism had already become identified as a source of evil in the world. It's a, for me as a Jew, it's an astonishing uh, uh, bit of fancy footwork that, um, and I said this last time, that if the world didn't, if the Jews didn't exist, the world would have to, humans would have to invent <laughs> Jews. Yeah. And in places where Jews didn't exist, there were, those, those, those um, societies had their own Jews, as it were. Does that, you, know what, you know what I'm saying? The people who were the problem, the people who you ostracized, the people who were in, you needed inextricably in your economy, but you still could hate them viciously, right? So human beings seem to need to invent Jews. The Jews happened to be in Europe, Christianity and, Euro, and European uh, uh, um, uh, civilization basically spread to almost the entire world, and they exported anti-Semitism with them. And anti-Semitism became known in modern parlance of nation-states as anti-Zionism, and that the Jewish state was, was inextricably uh, an original sin. Now, every nation, listen to me, every nation has an original sin because they kicked somebody else out. Every single nation in the world. Before that, it was tribes. Before that, it was whatever. That's, I got to finish this thread, Nancy. Um, so, I'm going to share my definition again. A Anti-Zionism is anti-Semitic. When you single out the Jews, or the Zionist entity, or the state of Israel, as somehow uniquely sinful, so much so that the only way to atone for that sin is to cease to exist. Right? And this is the orthodoxy of the left right now. Now, listen to how close that is to Christian, Christian anti-Semitism. That the Jews are the original cause of the death of our Lord. And that the only solution to that sin is if the Jews cease to exist and accept Jesus as our Savior.
Remember how that translated into racial anti-Semitism under the Nazis, who then said, it's not about religion, it's about race. And if the Jew, only the Jews were eliminated, our race would no longer be sullied by these evil and insidious and foreigners, right, who control things and who make it impossible for us to be the good people we're supposed to be. Now, after the war, anti-Semitism translates into a new metastasis, and that's anti-Zionism. I don't know if I could say this any clearer than I'm saying. Meanwhile, back in the land of Israel, how do you react when the entire world is telling you to basically uh, uh, kill, you. kill yourself? You get more defensive, you get more right-wing, you get more militaristic, so that the trends that I was describing about Israel after the Six-Day War are all reinforced by the global juggernaut of anti-Semitism that now masquerades as anti-Zionism. And so you can't have one without the other. The more you press, the more you defend. What, you know, and it's only... Very few people, but among the Jews, you will now hear, therefore, Jews say the same solution that they said about being Jewish in Europe. What was the solution to the Jewish problem in Europe in the 19th century? No, le leaving was only the Zionists. They were the only ones. Assimilate. The Jewish problem. Number one, that we are the problem. Assimilate. Disappear. The people I know who are most against Judaism are secular Jews. Yes, they have drunk that Kool-Aid. And they, think, they don't know it. But all they're doing is spouting exactly what well-meaning, intellectual, cosmopolitan Jews of 19th century Europe wholeheartedly endorsed, which was, let's become, let's out-Gentile the Gentiles. Let's just disappear. Because clearly, that's going to solve the problem. And so you will meet many Jews today who are starting to say the same thing. If Israel ceased to be a Jewish state and became a state for all its citizens, problem solved. There will be peace. This is on its face when you study history. So ridiculous. So just pathetic that it astounds me, not because I didn't wish it was true. There's just no evidence that this is actually the case. Do you follow what I'm saying? There's no historical evidence that the conflict will go away if the Jews immolate themselves. And yet, that is how internalized anti-Semitism works. If you've internalized the message that the Jews are the problem, then you agree that the Jews are the problem. Uh, take a breath. I wanted to make sure I got this out to you in as clear language as I could. That doesn't mean you don't criticize Israel. It doesn't mean you don't do this. It doesn't mean you don't do that. It's when it becomes a new orthodoxy. And again, my experience of people on, many people who consider themselves on the left, is that they love the world to be binary in terms of who the oppressor is and who the victim is, who's more oppressed, who's who's more this, who's more that. And then, of course, because we care about the underdog, 
take the part of the underdog against the oppressor. Now, that's very Jewish. And Israel, objectively, is a military and economic powerhouse now. So this, it's not, this is not self-evident. It's very complicated. Not only that, as Israel has pushed itself, as Israel has gone more and more to the right over the last decades and looked for allies, the Soviet bloc rejected them, the Third World rejected them, France, they fell into the arms of Henry Kissinger, right? It's like anybody. Um, and anybody, it's not like this was some, as I say, cabal of all-powerful Jews plotting to take over the world. This was a nation under existential threat looking for military and economic allies. We forget just how isolated Israel was. And so, however, the, the, the result of it is that, well, Israel's, Israel's military industrial complex is, you know, gives, provides, it's, it's nasty, everybody. It's nasty who their allies are, who they sell armaments to, who they cut deals with. It's like that's part of the reality of Israel right now. Israel has become pretty entrenched, not as a socialist Zionist egalitarian dream society, but as a capitalist and military juggernaut. It goes back to propping up the Shah. It's not a new thing. It's not new, but you have to understand that, that I don't think this was a foregone conclusion of Israeli history, which is what the anti-Zionists think. The anti-Zionists hold that, well, of course, Israel's a nation state. That's what nation states do, especially and only the Jewish one, um, uh, especially. However, when you study the history, Israel's grip on its very ability to survive was so tenuous in the 50s and 60s that you just can't claim these conspiracy theories that are such part and parcel of anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist uh, thinking um, in Israel's early history. Just like the Israeli governments who wrote, just like the Ben-Gurion and those who wrote the Declaration of Independence never anticipated that they would be the, uh, co the occupying power of people who don't have full civil rights, millions of them, they didn't anticipate that. We also can't anticipate where history has pushed and pulled Israel to its position as bedfellows with other, with the military industrial complex all over the world. It's like, but it happened. Um, does that a good enough reason for Israel not to exist? None of it is a good enough reason for me. I want to be clear about this. What other nation state has to say we have to prove that we deserve to exist? Do the Palestinians, by some level of behavior that they manifest, do they have, does that, or otherwise are they unjustified in being a national movement? Does the, uh, uh, name it, name it any nation, nationality. Do they have to prove somehow that if they don't live up to a certain standard, and it gets back to what you were saying, do they have to prove that they deserve to exist? No. The only reason that's a part of the discussion about Israel is because of the anti-Semitic uh, um, nature of the discourse. Um, so I know no way to explain this briefly. Yeah. <laughs> which is part of the problem. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? 
It's part of the problem. How do I have this conversation? We're just scratching the surface as I like, you know, spout off for hours here. And I, you know, and I thank you. I really thank you for giving me the opportunity to try to articulate what, what I feel is the most accurate description of things that I can You've come up with. Um, but uh, part of the problem is that it's so complicated. And when I take groups to Israel, who's been to Israel with me? Carol, yeah, the, the, the goal is, and I always say this jokingly at the beginning, that you finish this trip feeling confused. <laughs> and excited, but confused. Um, so, yes, Paula. Uh. Because it's, it's, it's taken, I, I regret that somebody left who's a fellow public access producer. Oh, this person who was here? Yeah, and didn't Well, say, unfortunately, it's inappropriate for her to just come to the last class. No, 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 I'm not, I'm, I'm just saying, I kept saying, come, 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 and a week went by, oh, I forgot this and that. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, you've plowed the ground so well, and, <clears throat> you know, I, I just think it needs to continue with, Oh, well, thank you, Paula. Thank you so much. I need a break, but uh, we'll, I, will, I will definitely give that some thought. But does it always have to be you? That's what I'm saying. Um, we have this beautiful space. It's easy for me to walk to. I don't have to hit <laughs> Thank you, Paula. We'll have more classes soon. Um, Marka, we'll go a couple of minutes long, and then there's some more snacks. So I'm an easy solution for all of this. Good. Which is... We get a different go global scapegoat. I recommend the Brits. The Brits? Yeah, between Brexit and all their colonialism. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, they put us in the, this situation to begin with, right? That's right. Uh, and many other countries. But I, I just, how do you, I understand what you just said, and I take it to heart because I really question what's going on with Israel, I'm very disappointed. Um, but um, how do you conflate this with the way Israel behaves today or what Israel is doing today? This is really right-wing politics and this military might and all this with uh, liberal democracy and human rights. And we, are, we were the victims of the same exact types of policies when we were in Russia, right. when we were right. in World War II, I mean, forever, right? How can we, as Jews, I don't... Right, I understand. I understand. So, speaking as, speaking as a Jewish leader, what I have to say is don't give up on Israel. That's no. what there is to say. Be in the loyal opposition. Be in the, be in the loyal opposition. But what, so, would we, what would we look for? What would be our oh, goal well, as a country, as an Israel as a country? Where should it go? This is the question. Oh. Not politically only, but uh, 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 philosophically, how do you have what the Zionists, like you said, the, the Zionists said, we can be a Jewish country and be a liberal democracy. How do you achieve that? Which was a commonplace in Europe, right? right. But how today with this... This was not, Judaism is not... Uni- the Palestinians are there now. So right. what can we expect? What can we propose? Because it used to be two nation solution, it's right. not anymore. Right. Where so we we're in the mid we're we're in the we're we're in the dark. We need another herzl. We're we're in the dark. 
the two-state solution is dead. Right. If it's revived in the future, it might happen, but there's no path towards it right now. So what is our goal? And uh, my own, uh, so I don't have the answer, except that I'm not going to give up. That's really my answer. There are, and I said this before, there are scores and scores of NGOs in Israel, of non-government organizations, of grassroots organizations, of fundraising organizations, that are working on improving relationships between Israelis and Palestinians on uh, women's rights and minority rights in Israel, on uh, uh, democracy education in Israel, on coexistence. They're all there. They're still doing it. So if you care, then we have to take our confusion and our despair and not give up. And look, because I, you know, that's what there is to say. Um, I, I have questions about public criticism of Israel the same way so many other people do because of the presence of anti-Semitism unnamed in all the discourse. So that's why I'm not willing to give up my identity as a Zionist because that identifies me as part of the Jewish project. And I don't want to be, I don't want to put myself outside of that. I think that only helps the the, the forces of anti-Semitism. So that's why, for me, staying engaged in whatever way you can find that's meaningful, and there are so many. I mean, think about Akko. Who was saying about Akko? I did. Um, um, my, um, go places where people are getting along and, and help them. You know, find those organizations and send them money. It's like, the game's not over. He said to me, I was there about six years ago, he said, 10 American Jews to support people like me, who are the old Zionists, because if we, get, if all the people in the U.S. are going to be on the right and supporting the, the government in Israel, then what are we going to do? Right. And this is a problem. That's right. But there's a lot of Jews here who are with Netanyahu. Right. A few last words. Um, Carrie, uh, uh, Ruth, Nancy, Carol, Marka. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was going to, Carrie, I was going to say that, but, but, um, 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 I just, I just blanked. No, I was going to Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm staring at you and my name is, what? Tamara. Tamara. And Tamara, um, uh, said she doesn't care about the other nations. But yes, we are witnessing a global anti-democratic trend in the world right now. Israel's not hermetically sealed from these forces. And uh, I don't know what the future holds. I'm just not going to give up. Um, uh, Ruth, Nancy? Uh, two things. I recently heard that Nazareth Unique, which is Upper Nazareth and Nazareth and Nazareth, are incorporating together. Now, I, I live Loud. in Nazareth I'll explain. I'll explain. With a community center that was doing after-school programs for Arabs and Jews together, and the right. school system was Arabs and Jews together, and yet they considered at the time that Lower Nazareth was Christian or Arab, not Jewish, and Upper Nazareth was Jewish. So I had conflicting feelings when I heard this, because 
Here, these two communities all got along. They had all these programs together. And it was simply that one town was very, very old, and one town was very, very new. Because at the same time, the Ethiopian Jews were living there. Right. They didn't speak Hebrew. They didn't speak English. They didn't know Judaism. Right. So now, after doing these classes with you, I have sort of a slightly different view of how I'm picturing what's happening in Nazareth and Nazareth to be. That maybe this isn't a horrific thing. That this is a wonderful thing, and that they're now combining the small communities and the small school system, and it really is going to combine all of Nazareth. And to me, if that can keep happening in a lot of different areas of Israel, we might be able to get to a different type of Israel. The other thing I want to say is that there are a lot of companies out now that are considered Palestinian and Israeli companies combined. A lot of them are women. Um, but not necessarily. A lot of them are related to food or bath products. Mm. But if you want to support Israel and support different cultures coming together in Israel and living peacefully and having funds to do that, go buy some olive oil and zaatar. Go buy some bath salts. <laughs> go buy, seriously, like this is what I do since I can't just go to Israel and travel around. But it's a way for me to be a Zionist and support everybody I want to support in Israel. The game's not over. The game is not over. Nancy. Um, first of all, I want to thank you for really a masterful explanation on, you know, from beginning to end. Um, and particularly in what I see, you know, of course, the, the challenge and the, but teasing it out, the Zionism and the anti-Semitism, and someone alluded to it, it's the youth, you know, and you read about it every day in the paper, the American, you know, this divide, because they have drunk that Kool-Aid and they see Israel as being, they don't, they don't really get it how anti-Semitic it is and repetitious of before, that they're the villain. I mean, they could look at, why not, like look at Saudi Arabia, Yemen, or any place, and they're looking at Israel and saying, no, Israel is, how do we deal with the youth, which is really even a problem in my own family. Right. Because they, right. Can't, they can't call themselves a Zionist. Right. So, my, thank you, Nancy. So my contribution, my contribution, uh, hold on a sec, my contribution to this discourse, hopefully, is that, and what's lacking, especially on the left, is an analysis of how anti-Semitism functions to skew our public, dis to skew our, uh, how, uh, our, our, our vision. And... Uh, you know, I'll keep trying to do that. Carol? Uh, two things. One is, for those of you who have just come to this class, we've been meeting for 25 years on Thursday afternoon. <laughs> and, and whether it's Torah study, just straight Torah study, or whether it's studying an an old one of the Hasidic rabbis, or the ancient rabbis, or the poetry, or... Or... or um, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel. Abraham Joshua Heschel. Um, it all comes together as this phenomenal education in what it is to be Jewish. And so I, I would encourage you to keep coming whatever is offered because it's always amazing. We're always sitting here at the end of a class and going, no, we can't stop, we can't stop. <laughs> the other thing is I said this to you after the very first class. I think this is your book. Oy. And I think, I think, it's only my opinion, 
I think you have to write it. I think it's not much. It's going to show Oh, okay. Thank you. Well, I'm glad I recorded this. That might be a start. <laughs> then Thank you have to get some time off if you're ready. Also, also, Marka. I, I had a lot of conversations when. A couple I was more there. comments, everybody. Yeah. I had a lot of conversations in Jericho, and one of the interesting things about Jericho is there is a really strong presence of NGOs. There's signs up everywhere, sponsored by Americans, sponsored by Americans. And the Palestinians I talked to who really were telling me their life stories, there was such a sense of, we don't want to be charity cases. We want to actually have viable livings where we're not haggling, you know, where it's not like, oh, here's this real financial world, and then we're in this world of haggling and... and handouts, essentially, international and handouts. handouts. Right. So I just want to point that out because, you know, the charity is great, and people can really resent it and really feel less than because of it. Well, that goes back to it. one of the things we didn't cover today was the professional victimhood of the Palestinians, mm -hmm. which has been enforced by mm -hmm. the Third World Bloc uh, and by the Arab nations in order to keep um, the focus on Israel. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the most unfortunate aspects for the Palestinians. But there are, if, as Ruth was saying, there are incubators in Israel. Mm -hmm of uh, helping uh, high-tech incubators in both the uh, Palestinian territories and in Israel proper for Israeli Arabs and for Palestinians who want to get into high-tech. There's all kinds of stuff you can support. There's all kinds of stuff. David? I was just going to say that I've been to each one of these sessions. It's been extremely worthwhile. But in addition, I've gone back and listened to the Podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really enforced my understanding of what took place in, in this session. And I recommend for those who haven't been to every session to go back and listen to them. And for everyone who's been to every session to go back and listen to everyone. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Really I second important. that. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, and uh, uh, well, thank you, everybody. And thank you, Robbie, again, uh, for bringing the delicious food today. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you.